0: Welcome to Uganda's Young Changemakers, a podcast by United Social Ventures interviewing young social entrepreneurs in Uganda as they start their journeys creating change through their social startups. I'm Leo Hengis, one of the founders of United, and this week I'm talking to Paul Matovu, founder and CEO of Vertical and Micro Gardening, a social venture in Uganda which United has been supporting for several years and has been recognized with awards such as the International Youth Foundation's Laureate Global Fellowship in 2017. And it's recently also been shortlisted for the Royal Academy of Engineering's Africa Prize for Engineering. So Paul, um, thank you for agreeing to be part of this podcast. Um, I think before we get on to the venture, uh, vertical microgardening, it'd be great to learn a bit more about yourself and your background. So like, how old are you? Uh, where were you born? What was your child- childhood like?
1: Uh, thank you, Leo. I'm Paul. Um, I'm 29 years old and I'm the last born of 20 kids.
0: How many kids? 20. 20.
1: And I was born to a mother I don't know now. Um, raised in Kampala and then when my father passed on I had to go and live with my grandparents in the village and then later on I had to come back to Kampala. Yeah, it was bit challenging growing up but it was an opportunity for me to experience life learn about um, how to handle different challenges in life and you know understanding the two different worlds the village and the city so I take it as an opportunity having grown up in both settings
0: so how old were you when your father died and you moved back to the village
1: honestly Leo uh, my documents show that I'm 29, but I to go to, you know, it's I'm not very certain, if, because I've never interacted with my parents, so no one knows how old I am exactly, so, yeah. But this is this, you know, how the system is, when you're required to present a birth certificate, you go to the ministry and say, probably, I'm th- I think I'm 29 years, and this is my birth. And that's how, yeah, for me, that's the case. It's not the, the case for many people, but that's the case for me.
0: So were you living with some of your siblings as well, with your grandparents?
1: Wow, it's a very interesting question. So my father, each one of us had their own mother, so I don't share a mother with anyone. Mm. So presumably my father had 20 wives, you know, and I never had chance to grow up with any of them. But later when I went to the village, I think uh, I was able to meet one of them who had been to the village before, and then two others who joined us later when one of our uncles passed on, who was taking care of them. So I, so I had just to interact with three of them when I was growing up, but I was a big gap because I didn't feel like, <laughs> you know, we are very, there wasn't that kind of bond of brother-sister or brother-brother. Mm. Uh, yeah, it was a, it was really challenging. Uh, but, you know, like I told you, when my dad passed on in 1996, I was, you know, we have the second funeral here, and then they chose, the, they select the successor, and I was selected. So, being the last born, and I'm the heir to my father, uh, that means, you, you know, it comes with a lot of responsibilities, and now, to my siblings, I'm the father. I'm not the last born, but I'm the father. And so uh, later on as I grew up, I had to start taking more responsibility and starting to look out for each and every one of them. And,
0: yeah. yeah, that sounds like you were given a lot of responsibility at a very young age. Sure. <laughs> and when you talk about the village, where is that in Uganda?
1: It's in Mitiana. Oh, actually right now it's been made a new district called Kasanda now. It's a new district.
0: Yeah. Okay, how f- whereabouts in Uganda is that for people who aren't so... Uh,
1: that's about two, two and a half hours drive from Kampala.
0: Cool, yeah. okay. And so you then came back to Kampala. Was that for your school, university?
1: So, yeah, that's, that's also a good question to ask. When I, went, you know, when I was a child, when I was living with my father, I, I refused to go to school because I was, you know, like a street kid. Uh, My father was busy, he was never home, my stepmother was always busy, and I would spend all my day with the kids on the streets, and I enjoyed that that kind of life. They sent me to school, I refused to study. Uh, I didn't find anybody in studying. I enjoyed, you know, dancing on the streets, making money, and I was a rich kid. You should know that, Leo. So, So, when he died, and I went to the village, that was the first opportunity I had to you know, to be in class and study with the other kids, however, uh, before my father passed on, um, for like one year he was teaching me himself, because he was a professional teacher, so he took off some time, once in a while, to teach me, you know, mathematics and reading and writing and so, whereas I wasn't in in school formally, I was learning actually more than what the other kids were learning. And so when I went in the village, I had to start afresh from primary one in UPE, and that was 1997 when UPE was introduced in Uganda, so universal primary education, oh, which is free and you don't have to pay anything. We were only required to pay ar- around 1,000 shillings. I don't know how much would be in
0: pounds. Well, today it would be about 20p, under 20. <laughs> sure. Yeah, about 20p, or yeah. about 30 cent.
1: And so that's what I was required to pay in school, you know. Like, um, I don't know what it was called, like development fees. But sometimes my grand- mother would fail to pay that money uh, because we were many kids and she didn't have a very sustainable source of income. And it was quite challenging. I lived with her for two years. She died. I had to live with my uh, auntie who passed on a year later. I mean, I had to go live with my grandfather who passed on a year or two later so I think by 2015 everyone close to me in terms of parents and grandparents had passed on and I was living on my own uh, so I had to go around the village, uh, try to make money and still live I emphasize I was a rich kid because <laughs> I would work hard, uh, get money, pay my school fees. Um, yeah, and, you know, live a good life. But it was challenging because I, I I could spend a day without eating food. It was hard to have... In the village, you have to grow food. Uh, you have to spend some time on the farm. But I remember I was studying, so it was hard for me to, to do farming. And so getting food wasn't easy. I, I would go out to relatives asking for food. It wasn't easy, but mm. it, it was a good experience to have. Um, when my aunt passed on, I remember I had to live with my... What I say? Yeah, cousin, I think. Yeah, my cousin. And so we're living together in a big house of about 10 rooms. And, you know, we had nothing to eat, no money, no one to take care of us. You'd fall, I remember in primary four, I fell sick for like two months. And there wasn't anyone. There wasn't medicine. There wasn't. It was bad. But anyway, good news is uh, my uncle came back from the U.S. in 2002 and you know I'd been the best in class from primary one until that time I'd never been the second in my class so he picked interest in me and uh, you know uh, took care of me he took me to that's when I came back to Kampala because he he had to take me to a very nice school uh, you know take care of me and uh, pay all the school fees and that was the opportunity for me to come back to the city Uh, to me I think that was second chance and I I thought that I, uh, you know, by all means, I, uh, there wasn't no opportunity for me to misuse it mm. because,
0: yeah, it was like the last bullet, <laughs> you know, yeah. And so your uncle helped you through secondary school.
1: From primary, so that was. This is the. Uh, this is quite interesting because I was in primary six by then, mm. and like I told you, my record had always been number one, but when they took me to a modern school uh, in Kampala, an expensive school. Uh, They gave me the interview. I I passed some of the other subjects, and I think mathematics, I got 20%, and they asked me, do you want to proceed to primary 7, or do you want to stay in B6? I said, can I try primary 7 for two weeks, and I will tell you if I want it or not. They told me, okay, give it a try. I went to primary 7, and everyone was getting... 90 and above in mathematics, and I was getting 20 30. it's, <laughs> okay, it's okay, I can go back to primary six. And so, I had to you know, but th- that shows you the difference in this uh, education system. So, you restarted, yeah. yeah. I restarted primary six, and again, my performance wasn't bad, mm. yeah. But you know, to me, it, it was just a lesson, it was it. it painted, not just paint, a, painting a picture, but it was a clear indicator that uh, the quality of education in rural schools, most of the rural schools, uh, wasn't as good as the urban, you know, schools.
0: Yeah. Cool. And so you then go to university, and it's at university that the idea for vertical micro gardening So, starts. yeah,
1: talking about university... Um, my, my education background is really interesting. So, from primary to secondary, uh, to O-level, ordinary level, um, I went to, you know, the secondary school was close to the primary school that I went to. Um, so, after that, my performance in Senior 4, was in, I felt that it wasn't the best and I could perform better. And senior 4 is O-level? O-level, so so. yeah, O-level. So, I had to go to L- HSC, but I had to choose a different school and... My uncle, sorry if you're hearing this, (laughs) you know, I had to tell him, I want this other expensive and strict school. He didn't understand why I wanted it, but I felt that I'd become comfortable in this other school, and I wanted a school that was really strict. So, I, you know, strict and with very good performance, and where kids are more focused on education and, you know. So, yeah, and he was very mad at me. Why would you choose an expensive school? Why would you... And Yeah, but I made up my mind, and that's me. If I say this is what I want, I never change my mind. And so it was tough for us. Uh, my auntie, too, had to, you know, support me. But he, he eventually, you know, he, he had to pay the school fee. He did it, but I could tell he wasn't happy. But he was only happy after... You know, when I sat for the final examinations in Senior 6, and I was among the best students, I should say, and uh, I got government sponsorship to go to university. Uh, but in all of I wanted to do music. Uh, I wanted to, to study music at university. And so in Senior 6, when I was filling out the uh, university entry forms, I showed out music and forestry only two. I had four options but I filled out only two. Remember for you to do music at university you should have done music in secondary school. I did not done music. <laughs> it was such a risk but I was given forestry at, at uh, university. and uh, I think I was in some ways it was there was some bit of like I should say because that very uh, is when they introduced the course that I did at university social, social and entrepreneurial forestry. And it was typically, you know, forestry is for typical scientists. I hadn't done, like, a hundred, actually, I hadn't done sciences at uh, at secondary school. But then here I was admitted in a science course. Uh, it was challenging, you know. Yeah, but, yeah, so when I joined university, then, um, <clears throat> what happened is... Uh, I was ready to start something even before joining university. So in my vacation, I was working at a construction, uh, with a construction company, and here locally we call them porters. you know, I was a porter at a construction company, and after working for like two months, I felt that they 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 weren't paying me enough money, so I chose to ask for a contract to be filling foundations. So it's called foundation refilling for big ha- ha houses. And then they would pay, they could pay me like 500,000, 800,000, you know, and I felt like this was a lot of money. So when I went to university, I already had the entrepreneurship mindset, mindset and I wanted to set up uh, a company or an organization. And so in my first year, I got in touch with uh, guys who had set up an organization called Ideas for Us from the US and locally they wanted to start a chapter and my friends uh, Isaac and Adidas were the ones they contacted first so Adidas contacted me and asked me if I wanted to be part of it and I told him, give me two months, uh, think about it and he's like, why can't you make a decision now? and I told him because I know it, it may affect my entire life so after two months I gave him my answer I told him I was ready to start <coughs> ideas for us and, or rather ideas for Uganda and uh, we started with a chapter in Makerere University I knew the responsibilities that would come with that, you know, recruiting students uh, and setting up sustainable projects for
0: students. Uh, Yeah, sorry. So uh, tell me a bit more about Ideas for Us. So Ideas for Us is
1: an international non-government, non-profit organization that uh, specifically looks at environmental sustainability under a five-pillar benchmark of water, energy, ecology, waste management and food. And the way we operate is um, setting up chapters in universities uh, and local communities. Basically, the essence is to you know work with people of all ages to come up with solutions and uh, you know address environmental challenges, environmental and economical challenges. So we look at the you know the triple bottom line of uh, people, planet, and ecology. And so. When they told me this <laughs> Isaac if you're hearing this I knew these guys didn't know you know how much of a responsibility this would be to me as a student but they it sounded to be easy but to me it wasn't as easy as it sounded and when I started I remember recruiting students wasn't the easiest thing because uh, you know it was a new thing everyone is asking is there money you know how we going to get money uh, I'm like no there is no money it's just <laughs> us doing and everyone was you know kind of not very happy about it but you know they came to love it in in the first year we had over 1000 university students at macquarie part of ideas for macquarie chapter and in the same year i was able to open up nine university chapters where the a, a chapter at kyu uh Kumba University, Indiji University, Wadimbarra in University, what you know, very many, nine universities, and I had to, you know, champion all that. And I was a young student leader, but I had to mentor other leaders. You can imagine that kind of responsibility. But it was an opportunity for me to learn on how to deal with people and thinking about sustainability in general. And, you know, for two to three years, that's what I was doing. You know, doing cleanups, uh, mobilizing for student environmental events, tree planting and stuff like that. But uh, when I thought about one pillar, that's called food, you know, one of our pillars, the food pillar, uh, we hadn't done anything regarding that pillar, so uh, in 2014, when I was about to leave university, I had to start up a project, and that was initially it was urban micro gardening, and we partnered with uh, a friend of mine called Cleofash, who was leading Uganda Micro Gardening Institute, institution, something like that. And so we partnered and then, you know, the essence of Uganda micro, urban micro gardening was to teach urban farmers on how to grow food. And what inspired me to do that is because, you know, life at Compass is not easy, Leo. Uh, if you don't have money, then you're going to, to go hungry. But... My situation, you know, most kids at campus have their parents, right? Mm. Uh, I didn't have parents, like most of them.
0: Yeah.
1: Though I, had, I have people who really care for me. I had people who care for me, but I didn't want to, I don't know. Sometimes I would go without having food, honestly. There are days that came when I, I only had one bread, one piece of bread, and that's all I have, and I have no hope for getting food. So I, was th- I thought about how to integrate the... Farming knowledge that I got from the village years back, to you know the current food. uh I don't want to say food insecurity per se, but you know there are people food scarcity for some mm. people. Yeah. So how can urban people grow their own food? That's what I was thinking about. And everywhere I walked, I could see space where people could grow food, but everyone was complaining that we don't grow food because we don't have land. Mm. And so the project, it was a project by then, a project, uh, of course, under ideas for for Uganda, Macario University chapter, to to teach urban people on how to grow their own food using backspaces, rooftops, and any smaller available space.
0: Yeah. Cool. And so how did the, the product, the vertical farm as it is today, come out of that, develop over time? Oh, good question. So... Like I said, it was a project in the start.
1: And 2014, I was about to graduate. And that's when I started the project. We did some comment outreaches. Uh, thanks to my friend Cleo for you know, helping a lot with that, uh, with that task. But when I, you know, when I graduated, I thought of, actually, I didn't think about it. It's many people who are asking. How can I see something like this? You know, when you talk about growing food, food in a different way, you know, when you talk about sack gardening, for instance, someone will ask you, is there somewhere I can go to see this? Uh, when you tell them you can grow food on your rooftop, someone will still ask you, can I see this? You know, is it done anywhere? So we had to set up a demonstration farm, And I contacted uh, my friend and advisor and mentor, engineer Hasuna. Who had a piece of land in uh, in the city center, right next to the uh, to the taxi park, that mango area. Uh, so he gave us a piece of land there to to set up a demonstration farm. That was it was a very good thing because it was in the city center, very very you know busy with very many young people very many people who, who are looking for employment and we were I was seeing this as a potential home based enterprise you know of, of uh, micro gardening so when i s- sorry when you when you talk about micro gardening and yeah. sack based
0: gardening can you yeah. explain what you mean? So
1: micro gardening is growing crops on a small space. Uh, literally, you know, in simple terms, that's how we would term it. Yeah. So sack gardening is a subset of it. A, a sack is one of the innovations that are available locally to grow crops.
0: Uh, so like literally a sack, just yeah, what you just use get a sack, put sir, or, yeah,
1: yeah, and put holes on the in the sides, and then in the center you put stone pebbles so that, uh, one for water percolation but also for aeration and also you don't want the, the soil to you know to get compacted yeah. so in the
0: center you put sun pebbles so what you, what does your vertical farm do that's different to that? yeah take, so take that idea and run with it so
1: <laughs> what bring, yeah this again brings me to the vertical farm so we started out with the sack gardens and the area was a bit is that how I...
0: Sh- Sloped, yeah. Yeah, it
1: was yeah sloping, and whenever I trained, all our crops would be taken away. <laughs> and the other challenge is the sacks could easily rot, and also in terms of how many crops one could grow, uh, to me it wasn't, I felt like, you know, it's not enough. Of course, it, it, it's enough to some people, but to me, I, I said, probably we could do something better about this. I was more concerned about durability, uh, stability, and uh, capacity. So we started with just making a simple box. It, it, it took it took very many iterations to come up with the final pro- the product you see currently on the market. So the vertical farm ideally is a farm in the box uh, with um, different levels. As you can see, we say standard is 2 by 3 feet, but it's very scalable. We can make it bigger or smaller. And in the center, it has the vermicomposting chamber. Why we introduced vermicomposting is because, uh, you remember, I have an environmental background. And so there is something I skipped before, you know before starting the demonstration farm i was working as an agriculture extension officer that's what i did first after graduating from university so where were you doing that uh, i was working with an organization called uh, caritas and you know caritas op- uh, chinda mitana operates in about five districts uh, in uganda and so working with farmers i could see their predicaments and you know challenges when it comes to uh, fertilizers and what do people use? Everyone is using uh, synthetics, you know. Uh, but one day we got a, live, a very live testimony of farmers, you know, like ten women came to us as agriculture extension f- f- workers, and they told us they they call they call us teachers literally. They you know you and they, they, you're like a teacher to them, so that's so what they call you. So they told me, teacher, we have a problem. You people recommended that we use this uh fertilizer i I won't mention the name but when you use it the next season crops won't grow well unless you apply the same fertilizer so it means the fertilizers and the pesticides and herbicides you give us kill our soil so that we always depend on buying these from the shops and i was very concerned and I felt very guilty because being an environmentalist i was seeing this happening of course i was advocating Uh, for organic uh, farming but uh, it isn't only characters that works in this area, it's very many organizations and it's the system, it's how the system is so yeah, that informed my perception of organic farming and organic fertilizer basically so uh, we were thinking about how can we come up with a system that turns waste into compost in a very easy manner and you remember, if you may recall the, the pillars of ideas, one of them is waste management. So I thought about, you know, turning this waste into something valuable. We, we had done very many cleanups, but when you get waste from this location and take it to another location, you're not addressing the challenge, you're just transferring the problem. So I wanted to see how can you address the problem. So the Van Composting Chamber mainly was to manage house, waste at a household level, but also to help households. Uh, generate their own compost so that they are not dependent on industrial uh, fertilizers. Hmm. And my research at university was also into uh, an organic pesticide called from Tephrosia vogeli, which is a, a local shrub that, that grows locally. So, it, you know, that's a story for another day. But o- I was also interested in understanding how we can use organic pesticides. Things that can be made locally, things that someone can do at home,
0: yeah. And so, yeah, that explains why we have the vermicomposting chamber and yeah. And so, the vermicomposting chamber has earthworms inside it to break down the waste. Yes. So we
1: put the
0: house. Of course, the household will have to sort the waste first, and then only put
1: biodegradable waste. Then we introduce earthworms to the waste, and they they love it. They they'll be you know enjoying their meal as they make for your compost. Uh, what is interesting, I didn't know this in the start because our idea was generally to manage waste and give you compost. But one day, when you wanted breeding stock, we went to different suppliers of earthworms and they told me a kilogram is a hundred thousand. And I said, What are these guys kidding me? Like, that cannot be true. Anyway, I bought the kilogram. And then later, when I went, I went somewhere for an exhibition and I found other people who were selling at 200,000 earthworms. And so I came to learn that actually there is another revenue stream for the farmer. We can opt to sell the earthworms and make money. And yeah, so I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but for all the trials we conducted, we, you know, we tried different crops, we tried the tomatoes, we tried cucumber, we tried onions, uh, uh, we tried pak uh, but what was most outstanding is a farmer can actually make money out of selling crops. But, uh, you know, for tomatoes, for instance, and a few other crops, someone can earn up to 1.2 million shillings in a year from growing crops on a vertical farm. But if someone can still earn an extra income from selling earthworms, uh, you know, that was amazing, and I really loved the idea.
0: Yeah, so yeah. there's this central um, composting chamber yeah. where people can put their waste in and it will be broken down and you collect it at the bottom in a drawer. Sure. And then surrounding this this vertical chamber for the composting is are then tiers of sort of Soy, soil. Yeah. Organic soil and in, f- yeah. Black I soil. guess kind of in trays. Yeah. So there might be up to how many tiers of uh, standard is is seven, but we can reduce. You, you know,
1: we give you the option of planting less. Mm. Uh at least the farm, should, you should be able to plant 72 crops in the planting spots on the farm and then plant an extra about 12 uh, on
0: top and or at the bottom. So generally, it's seven years. So how did the product, the vertical farm, improve over time?
1: Yeah, uh, that's a great question. You know, when we had just invented, when I started this... It was about me and what I think works, and me falling in love with what I've produced, you know. And then testing that uh, at the demonstration farm and managing it very intensively, uh, my friend David was there every day to see that things work as, as expected. And then later we had to give out uh, like samples to communities, uh, Especially stay-home mothers in urban centers, and so the management we give the crops at the demonstration farm wasn't the same as what you know anyone else would give to their crops, and there were so there were a few variations in you know crop performance. Uh, to me and the guys I work with, everything seemed to be you know, straightforward and very easy, but to the user, uh, they need a lot of support. And so we we took a simple survey to understand what challenges people are facing, uh, how how much would they pay for the product, uh, in terms of usage, is it user-friendly or, you know, things Mm. like that. And we got some feedback from farmers and, you know, but we didn't have the capacity, again, to... To change the product the way it was, what? You, Why not? What was lim- stopping you? You know, coming up with an idea—if it's just me, it's you know—it's not easy coming up with an idea. But I think, personally, I'm convinced it's harder changing your own idea because one of the traps that we fall in is you you're in love with your product, you love your product, and you're very convinced that this is the best that anyone can get. This is the best that I can do. And so, you know, you go look at the product, look at it and say, but I think this is good. I mean, anyway, so, but the the other constraint was to do with finances. Because we, didn't, we we were lucky to get uh, from the Solution Fund of Ideas for us to do the piloting, mm. but moving forward, we you know we didn't we weren't getting any finances. I was using my my salary from Caritas to develop the product.
0: Yeah. And yeah, sorry. How much would it cost to develop each unit, each farm?
1: That's also a good question. So we were working with local craftsmen to do the product for us. Of course, what an agreement with them. You don't need to disclose this information. and You know stuff like that.
0: Mm. Yeah, do tell me if I'm going into <laughs> proprietary information, you don't have to answer the question. Yeah,
1: but uh, what happened is we had to move all around Kampala to look for a craftsman who could make the product that we
0: wanted. Because it's made of wood, right? Yeah, mm.
1: and we thought it's obvious that any carpenter could do this. We went to all the... You know wood hubs, carpentry hubs, and we couldn't find any who could do that, so when we went to Zambia, uh we were recommended to go to why you say that's where that's the industrial area where you can find guys who are very creative and we we got a guy he was he he was charging eight hundred and ten thousand to make one unit yeah. but before you know, he will call you next week to ask for money for something, you know anyway. To, to keep the uh, conservative figure of 810, this product could take one to two months to be completed. That was very painful. You know, um, when we put, when we made the first, you know, two units and put at the demonstration farm, there were very many people who could come to see this amazing product, and some of them could place orders. Can I can I have one? And then I would say, oh yes, we can get you one. What? What broke my heart most is when we placed an order and it took over four months to deliver one unit. And I said, "You cannot do business." <laughs> you know, it was frustrating to me and to to the and potential customers. And so we changed to another carpenter who, who was, you know, charging a less amount. He quoted us three hundred thousand, and that was nice. It's you know, you're saving five hundred thousand. After one month, before he, he had completed the product, he, he called me and he told me he had made a mistake. He had underquoted uh, us. He didn't know how much uh, this would cost. He didn't know that it was very technical and it would cost a lot of labor and machinery and stuff like that. And so he asked for another two hundred, three hundred thousand. 300,000. <laughs> <So, laughs> Not know. ideal. Yeah, so it was really frustrating. To me it's not just about the money, I'm concerned about the money because if you're making a product for a customer to buy, uh, remember in the beginning we're targeting, you know, poor people, people who cannot grow their food, uh, stay home mothers, The youth who don't have any form of employment, we want to help these people, we want them to be able to grow food so that they can feed themselves and also be able to sell food on the market and make an extra income. So if you're selling to them a product, if I'm manufacturing a product at 810,000, obviously I have to sell it for more than 1 million Ugandan shillings. Mm. That doesn't make sense to the customer. Probably me as Matovupo, I could afford that. I could afford to make 10 or 50 of those and put them on the demonstration farm, but That's, my intention is not to set up every, you know, it's not about the demonstration farm. it's about the user. But the other thing was about time, you know, I don't want to waste four months just running up to, after this guy to have one product delivered, one product. So uh, that was around, you know, from 2014, I think, yeah, we started the demonstration farm towards the end of 2014 through 2015, uh, actually 2016. And so in 2016, I thought of, what's the best way of addressing these issues? To do the product. The best way was to set up our own production function. We weren't intending to become carpenters, and again, we don't want to be carpenters, but specifically to make this product, one, uh, make it cost-effective, and also save time. Yeah, and in 2017, I started thinking of a campaign. For what you know, I was thinking about a campaign for close to a year because I didn't launch it until twenty October twenty seventeen. A crowdfunding campaign to generate some money. I was able to raise some money, raised about two thousand plus two thousand
0: dollars. Yeah, Yeah.
1: and then my my initial budget was five thousand. You know, because I went to carpenters. You know, I got I got quotations from different carpenters, and I feel uh a few shops that sell machines and I was comfortable that five thousand would be enough. So I raised two thousand I was able to convince a relative of mine and then they'll say oh, okay I'll give you an extra one thousand. So I thought I was close to the target. I had three thousand now. In the start of twenty nineteen I had to look for more grants, more funding and luckily I got extra funding. Uh I think I raised uh, it was up to ten thousand now. And I said, oh, now we have enough money to do everything. And my friend, (laughs) it wasn't, it didn't work out that way because we realized from the initial quotation that when you got, maybe it's not all of them, but when a local fabricator tells you it's going to cost you 2 million to make this product, believe me, it's going to cost you 4 million in one way or another. So, that's the trap we fell in again. Uh, we, uh, you know, I was looking at raising X amount of money and then the budget more than tripled. But still, uh, with persistence and, you know, a lot of hard work, we've been able to raise enough money uh, to set up a workshop, a carpentry workshop. Uh, so we have our production unit in Kacheri now. And luckily, we can now produce Remember, it used to take us two or three months to produce one farm. Now we can produce at least three farms in a day. Wow! The cost of production has come from the eight hundred and ten thousand, and now we can comfortably produce a unit at two hundred and fifty thousand Ugandan shillings.
0: Yeah. Wow! And when did this unit open?
1: It didn't open until Jan this year.
0: Wow! Okay. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm telling recently. you.
1: The other challenge was, man, it's it's really challenging because by this year
0: also you mean 2019. 2019
1: yeah <laughs> yeah well, there are thi- many things we didn't think about in the start you know for instance uh, when we were f- when I was fundraising I was fundraising for machinery uh, I knew we had to rent land and you know people would tell you oh it will cost you x amount of money but when you actually go to the landlord eventually he will tell you the value has increased and then you look into the quotations job for constructing the facility, and uh, you know, uh, you remember I studied this in 2016, 2017, thinking about this, and getting quotations early enough, and now it's two years down the road and things have changed. Uh, the way the system works. It, it, it has also been an opportunity for me to know how the informal sector works. Yeah, so, but, but anyway, uh, it took us longer than expected, but now we have the workshop ready and we can... You know, we are ready to deliver and produce vertical farms.
0: Yeah. Great. And at what point in this journey did United Social Ventures get involved? Wow.
1: I think that question was long overdue because <laughs> United came in long time ago in this conversation. You anyway. So in 2014, when I was still, uh, you know, leading all the, the the ideas chapters, I was able to meet with. Leo, (laughs) you, of course, (laughs) at Macare when Oxmark had just started. But, you know, we were talking about environmental things and events to do with, uh, clean-up campaigns and, I don't know, things like that. Uh, But when I graduated and went to work, I think I didn't get in touch. I would get in touch, but not very often. And for, like, one year, I should say, United wasn't involved in 2016, that's when uh, United got very involved. I remember in 2016 we that's when we won the Popular Choice Award from MIT. It was a very tough one, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so around that time, uh, that's when I reconnected with you, and you know, it was actually very helpful. I think most of the things I've done today is because of the very many. Mentorship sessions and the conversations, formal and informal, that we have had, uh, not just about the product, but also about me as an individual, because in most cases it may not be about the enterprise; it's about the leadership, uh, the management. Yeah. So, to answer your question directly, or for since 2017 up to date, United has been supporting us very strongly. I think locally, it has been, United has been our, I should say, mother, father, and grandfather. <laughs> okay,
0: okay. So, like, what kind of things have been most useful that, from United? What kind, like, we've, we've done a number of different tools yeah. and toolkits. Yeah, yeah. Um, there, are there any tools in particular that you remember being very influential Um, I don't know if I want to talk about tools necessarily, but I
1: want, you know, to start from, I want to start from the problem identification. Mm. You remember when I told you that when I developed a product, personally, I was interested in the, you know, very happy with the product, you know, but not necessarily thinking about what else would this, the user want? So, one, understanding the problem. I think that's what United helped me identify. Uh, then, you know, if you go to things like business model canvas and uh, uh, financial projections and stuff like that, all that has been very useful. But I don't want to mention these specifically. To mm. me, it's not just about a single, a single tool. It, mm. it has been, you know, knowledge accumulated from, very many tools, very many sessions. And that's why I say even the informal conversations we have are very, very useful. So, one, uh, w- there is the need not the needs assessment, there is that other tool that's to do with... Uh, I've forgotten the name of the tool, anyway. But it's a unique... You can describe it. Yeah, it's about understanding. For instance, if it's partnerships, what do you need from a partner? If it's to do with... Oh, is that a theory of change, maybe? Yeah, theory of change was also very useful. But there is another tool. There is another tool. I'll tell you when I remember. (laughs) So what was useful... That was very useful to me because initially when you're doing something, you think that you need everyone on board. You need to work with everyone. Of course, everyone could be worked with, but you need to understand what do I need? What does the enterprise need? What does... My organization need to grow, and where the most important thing is, where do I see myself in X amount of time? Where do I see myself in one year? Where do I see myself in five years? If you don't know that, then it's going to be hard for you to know what exactly you need. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, it, it's been very many years trying to develop. You know, I, I cannot say that I've developed the vertical farm because it's still under review and you know improvement. It's been very many years, but. Th- if I didn't set targets, if we didn't know that we want to be here in this time, wouldn't be anywhere. You know, it took me like two years or so planning just a campaign. <laughs> but it's because we knew that we want to be here at this time. So anyway, having come from uh, an NGO background, where you know, with advocacy, things are a bit different, different rather, because you, you know it's not too much request from the partner sometimes. With products, uh, with business, you need to be very specific because it may affect someone's budget or it could be, I don't know. But still, you need to know where you want to be. You need to know what exactly you need. And that, helped, that has helped me understand the part, kind of partnerships we need, the kind of people we need to work with. And thank you, Leo, for the volunteers because we've worked with very different volunteers from from the UK, from Oxford, and in many ways, these volunteers have been very, very useful to me. Working remotely is something that I really enjoy now. Yeah. What, what kind of things have they helped with? So from the start, uh, I think the first volunteer helped me so much with the financial projections, and sometimes I, I didn't know how important that would be until I dived deeper, deeper into it with this volunteer. And that was very useful. But, you know, I've been in touch with that volunteer up to today, and they've been there for me. You know, the other thing besides the very tangible things that people see is that you need someone who is there for you, someone you can consult, someone you can comfortably talk to when you have a challenge in your business, in your enterprise. Mm. Those may not be things that are documented, but those are very, very useful things. This entrepreneurship world sometimes gets lonely, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so um, they have all... last year they you know the volunteer helped me set up a website develop a website
0: where can uh, people find that website
1: yeah uh currently we are you know we are improving it so it's down but it's www.verticalmicrogardening.com. but cool.
0: yeah i'm um, sure so, people can go there to see your f- photos of the, the vertical farm as well
1: sure um the volunteer that came the other year is the one who helped me with the fundraising crowdfunding campaign. I had no idea how to do that, but she was very useful, you know. So there are those, those skills that I may not have, but someone else has. And there is nothing as beautiful as someone choosing to volunteer on your product or on your project, on your enterprise, and give it adequate time and they work
0: on it as if it's their own. So, uh, what does the future hold for vertical micro-gardening? Wow, very good question. Um, Actually, I should say also that currently you've just been, sh- you've been sh- recently shortlisted for the Africa Prize for Engineering, Sure. Uh, which is by the Royal Society, so congratulations on that and all the best. I think you're about to be heading off to the UK. Thank you. Um, for we'll be there in March,
1: there. in March at yeah. Peach at the Palace. Uh, at St. James Palace.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so you you're starting to get traction and recognition the the production unit has just opened. Yeah. What what's next? What are your targets for 2019 and beyond?
1: Actually, can I take you back
0: a bit? Okay, sure. Yeah. so you know from the
1: from the time we got the MIT award, you know, we've never looked back. We've been getting recognitions and you know different awards, we've been I've been selected for different fellowships and stuff like that um and that is very what it's very encouraging um yeah so this year like you said we're going for i'm going for the uh africa prize but something i thought about you know in 2017 we you know we had several several awards and if you're not careful as an entrepreneur you may get distracted by just looking at winning awards other than serving the community, serving the society, and you know, working on the enterprise and making sure you achieve your mission, your objectives, and your goals. So, at some point I thought about it so hard, that sometimes you easily get distracted. And I know there are very many entrepreneurs out there who get, you know, who are locked up in that trap. Uh, You want to, to get external recognition, but actually, you've not focused so much on yeah. So we've, it's hard for us trying to balance you know all these recognitions, but also delivering this service. And we want it to be fair that, whereas we're getting recognized for all these awards, and we want to see that we're actually doing the job that we should do. Yeah. So we're going for the Africa Prize. It's been a very nice program. It's a very interesting program, very nice, uh, very good. It's a learning platform, I should say. So to me, it's known just about getting the award the prize mm. no it's not about that it's more about what we have gained from being part of Af- Africa prize yeah uh what's in for vmg what next uh we are in partnership we are currently in partnership with design without borders and they're improving our product uh we just finished a research and ideation session a few weeks ago we want to make a vertical farm a better product having put in consideration all the demands, all the, you know, the features, all the needs and very many things, you know, that a customer may want in a product. And also, one other thing, we started with one one version of the product, uh, very expensive but targeting one market segment, but we later thought of, uh, you know, how can we serve the different markets? How can we serve the low-income and the high-end, you know, market? And now we are developing two versions: the premium version, which would, you know, be a bit expensive, uh, and the regular version for the low-income earners. Yeah. And so we shall have new prototypes. Other prototypes, I think, in the next two months, we shall have
0: the new versions of the vertical farms. Great, that's very exciting. So, Thank you. One final question: What would you, what advice would you give to the pool, the younger pool at Macerary, back in twenty fourteen, as you were just starting out?
1: Man, what I would tell that guy: <laughs> things don't happen the way you think. You know, uh, it's good to, you know, to be ambitious. Of course, we should be ambitious. I'm a very ambitious person, but. You have to factor to factor in, you know, the fact that things take time. And I think I still appreciate the young Paul because giving up has never been an option. And still, the I think the young Paul has informed the current Paul. But again, talking to the young Paul, uh, the other thing is sustainability is really important. For I did very many things at university. You you have to trust me on this. Very many projects. But without, one, without an exit plan. Two, without a very clear sustainability plan. So you find that I started maybe 20 or 30 projects. But (laughs) none of those, you know, it's like one or two. There are two actually that are successful. But, you know, all the rest were they. uh, But it was a very good learning. (laughs) It was a road to the to the future. Yeah, so thinking about one sustainability to being how do I say that really as realistic as possible. Hmm. Because sometimes we assume that things, you know, things are things are easy or things can just happen, you know, it's just a click but when they, are, they don't happen in such a way. Uh, the other thing to think about, you know, to tell the young Paul, <laughs> who is speaking to the, who is conversing with old Paul now, yeah, learning and learning is very important. You should never stop learning. And I think the, the more I dive into what I am doing, the more I learn, the, the more I feel like I know, I know less, mm-hmm. you know? The Paul of 2012, 2013 thought that he he, know, he has a lot of information. He knows almost everything. And now I feel like, I know very little. And I can comfortably tell you I don't know. Maybe many years ago, I, I couldn't easily tell someone that I don't know. Yeah, so when you don't know, I appreciate that you don't know. And try to find out. Go learn from someone who really knows. And also surround yourself with people who are positive, people who... You know, it takes me back to identifying who the right partner is, who what, what are your needs. You, you really need to put that into consideration. Yeah, but I think the young poor and the current poor have been the same and <laughs> yeah, very persistent and uh, very ambitious and
0: yeah. cool. Thanks, Paul. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Leo. Thank you for listening to Uganda's young changemakers. United Social Venture, which produces it, is an incubator for youth-led social startups in Uganda. Our mission is to empower youth-led change through our mentorship and business development services for social ventures. Uganda is one of the world's youngest and most entrepreneurial countries, but 21% of these businesses go out of business every year, and only 2% expect to employ over 20 people in the next five years. These entrepreneurial ventures are predominantly personal businesses rather than transformative ventures. United Social Ventures is trying to change this by channeling the entrepreneurial spirit, coaching the most promising social ventures with tools which provide a framework for their young leaders to design impact and business models. Ultimately, these will make their initiative more effective, sustainable and scalable. We were founded in 2013 by recent graduates of Oxford and Makerere Universities. To date, we've supported over 80 youth-led social ventures, and they valued our support at twice the costs. Ventures have won awards such as the Anzisha Prize for Agriculture, the Global Cisco Innovation Competition, and Youth Action Net Global Fellowships. We've hosted dozens of international volunteers in Uganda, and 25 Ugandan students have been on exchanges to Oxford University. You can find out more about United Social Ventures' work at our website, unitedsocialventures.org. And stay tuned for more podcasts. This podcast is produced in partnership with Media Challenge Initiative, a Ugandan non-profit which is building the next generation of journalists in Africa.